I'm, I'm Laurie Stevens. I'm the Associate Dean for Development and External Relations at the Harvard Divinity School. Welcome, officially. I'm so glad that so many of you could join us. We have over 400 people signed up for today, which is just fantastic. So now I'm excited to introduce our moderator, John Brown, and this panel. We put this panel together so that we could all hear more about pathways of different HDS alumni, and particularly today, those pathways around business and the intersections of business with ethics and faith and justice. Um, John, this is an area of great expertise for John. He teaches um, in this area at the Divinity School and he just recently finished teaching a J-term class with some faculty at the business school where he really looked at um, how, you know, how spirituality motivates leaders and guides their toughest decisions. So I know he'll facilitate a wonderful conversation today. John is a leader for our community in many ways, as an alum of the school, as a faculty member, and as a member of our Dean's Council. Um, and as faculty member, John is practitioner in residence in religion, business ethics, and the economic order. Um, so John, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. And the members of the external relations team for hosting this discussion. I am especially pleased to introduce our panelists. Catherine Collins, MTS 11, Karim Hudson, MTS 08, and Al Hussein Madhani, MTS 2001. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to know each panelist during the run-up to today. But I would like them to introduce themselves to our guests and to briefly share with us a tidbit from their backgrounds that we will not find on LinkedIn or Wikipedia, and also describe briefly their journey to HDS. So to get us started, Catherine, take it away, please. Great, John, thanks so much. And thanks everyone for joining today. It's so wonderful to gather and have a chance to discuss these topics and the, the interweavings uh, that exist in all of our lives. Um, I'll tell you a little about how I landed at HDS and then I'll, I'll give you my tidbit. Um, I came to HDS as a mid-career kind of student. Um, I had been investing about 20 years uh, before uh, I went to divinity school. And an interesting thing uh, happened when I made that decision. My investment friends were all very happy, but they kept saying things like, we're so glad you found your calling. And then my friends at HDS were very, very welcoming, but they kept saying things like, we're so glad you've seen the light. Uh, and both were, I think, well-intentioned, but a little bit um, divided. Uh, and they really um, reinforced this idea that these two realms should exist in separate uh, arenas. But my goal all along was to kind of unite them. Um, as my investment work had proceeded over the years, uh, and I got more and more expert with more and more responsibility, um, the job actually got more and more narrow, um, much more sophisticated in terms of all the financial lingo uh, and tools that I was using day in and day out, but bit by bit, a little bit less connected with the world. And the whole reason I love investing is that connection with the world, the way that finance is influenced by the world and, and vice versa um, has the chance to have influence as well. And so I wanted to really reunite these things. And as I worked more and more in sustainability, I found the same dynamic was at place. The sustainability experts we're speaking one language and the investment experts were speaking another language. And so uh, my goal in attending HDS was to be able to be a better bridge and a better translator 
uh, between these different domains of knowledge. Um, thankfully, those have started to knit together in a much more complete way now. Um, but in going to divinity school, I wanted to kind of get at the, the root of the root, you know, not the tactics and tools of sustainability and investing, but the, the true core purpose uh, of, of all the systems that we've created and um, to learn from that wisdom. Um, so it was a wonderful chance to uh, kind of reroute myself uh, and my own practice and to think more deeply about what a, what a reconnected uh, form of investing might look like. Um, all the way along through that whole journey, uh, my tidbit is I am also a beekeeper. Uh, and so I cannot tell you how wonderful it has been to have this totally tangible, alive model of a collective system that functions uh, very effectively uh, as I'm struggling with all the questions um, in our human realm about individual versus collective good. Uh, beekeeping has been a, a tremendous uh, boon uh, to my understanding and uh, the bees have been amazing teachers uh, right along with, with all my uh, community at HDS. Thank you, Catherine. Corinne, please. Well, that's hard to follow up. That's a fantastic story. I did not know about the bees, but um, anyway, um, hello all from New York City, specifically snowy Harlem. And um, to all my uh, friends in Boston, I give you greetings. We wish you well, but um, I hope you guys are still mourning the departure of Tom Brady and not going to the playoffs this year. Um, <laughs> in any case, um, I came to... Um, I came to uh, Harvard really as focused on business and as a, as a business student. Um, and um, as I began to kind of explore um, some of the, um, the intersection between real estate and community and faith, um, I grew a interest in learning what was happening at Harvard Divinity School. And quite frankly, I think I've always had in my blood what, what I think my faith would call like a calling, Catherine said for, to understand more about what it is that I believed. I felt like that was something that was freeing um, for the spirit and for the soul and for the mind. And, um, and so, you know, I don't think everybody understood it, um, but it was something that um, I decided to pursue and um, I really never really questioned it in my mind. Um, and, um, and when I walked into um, Helmut Kester's intro to New Testament class, um, it was probably one of the most significant experiences of my life. Um, and so, um, and so um, uh, I continued to actually go to divinity school um, after I graduated from, from business school, um, which I did in 2003. And for five years, I guess, until 2008, I was uh, traveling back and forth on a Chinatown bus when Jet Blue first started on the $20 fares to get up on Tuesday and Thursday classes. And at the same time, I had already started Genesis, um, but um, for profoundly fulfilling for me. Um, and, um, and so um, that's a little bit how I got to Divinity School. I would say in terms of a tidbit, um, even though I'm a Bronx and Harlem boy, I love hiking. Got a chance to really experience it um, when I was in my uh, early 20s. <clears throat> and um, my favorite hike was uh, with the National Outdoor Leadership School uh, in the Brooks Range of, of Alaska. Thanks, Karim. We're turning it over to Al Hussein, please. Good morning, everyone from sunny California. Silicon Valley is from where I hail. Um, you know, 
I, I joined the divinity school right out of undergrad. Uh, I had decided I was gonna take a brief and quick stop between my bachelor's degree in medical school because I thought, you know, I'm gonna be a doctor of the body. I think I should probably study the soul as well. Uh, I never went to medical school. <laughs> so uh, I was entirely enraptured by uh, the learning um, at the Divinity School, specifically the interplay between the history of religion and this great nation of ours, um, not just of one religion, but of all faiths and how the faith community historically has actually been a pillar of the founding of this country and continues to be a pillar in the business community and in all other communities. But there was never really this divide between them, but actually a combination, a combined force that actually brought us to where we are today. Uh, so my, my divinity career uh, never took me to medical school, but um, I uh, decided to pursue a, a, you know, advanced coursework and advanced degrees in Islamic studies and in Arabic. And I was teaching Arabic at Georgetown University on 9-11. And I leaned heavily on my divinity degree and my divinity connections during the months and years after in which I was asked to serve my country uh, as a um, subject matter expert in Islamic studies and Arabic. How did I land in Silicon Valley? Well, here's the tidbit. Um, everything I've done actually can, in terms of my success and my decision matrix, really boils down to just one decision. And that is to just follow my wife around the world and figure out what she's doing and if I can just ride on her coattails. So um, I'm actually the scrub, like she's actually the baller. I don't know, but uh, you guys should meet her. She's pretty amazing. And you know, when we were in Washington DC, that's where I was. She received a job offer to, from a company that claimed they were gonna make money on the internet in 2007. I mean, do you guys remember that time? That's when like Craigslist was like the homepage of the internet. That's in like when Yahoo was like the bomb. Do you guys remember that, yahoo.com? Well, you and I were carrying Blackberries because we were cool, but most people were carrying like Motorola flip phones. And she received the call to join the small company out here to make, uh, to make money on the internet when the world had thought all the money was made already on the internet. And I followed her out here to Silicon Valley without a job and leaned in heavily into her career and had to recreate myself out here in Silicon Valley, uh, leaning again heavily on my divinity connections, my Harvard connections and you know, my, my expertise. And that's how I found myself in corporate America now leading uh, people operations and human resources at a uh, you know, small half a billion dollar startup uh, here in the Valley. Thanks, Al Hussein. Great story from all three of you. Each of you is engaged in a critical sector of the economy, technology, sustainable investments, sustainability, and built communities. Catherine, as head of sustainable investments for Putnam, my question is, um, we're going to share on the screen momentarily 
a copy of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Meanwhile, I'd like to ask, in an interview published a few years ago, you said the following, formal religions can be exclusive and we need to extend their wisdom into more secular contexts that are widely accessible. Please tell us what that statement means to you within the context of the world we live in today. And if you could provide us with an example from your personal or professional experiences, that would be great. Sure, um, thanks for the question, John. There's, there's a lot in there. I think the overarching theme, which, which all of us actually have already touched on in, in different ways from our own perches is, um, is this theme of reconnection. You know, the idea that um, you know, ethics sit over here in the religious sector and then the business world sits over here. You know, it's just a fiction and we all kind of know it. And yet the tools and the structures we've created um, in all of these different dimensions, I, I think are usually designed a little bit more for exclusion than inclusion. Um, it's true in a lot of our religious settings and institutions. It's true in academia, I'm sorry to say. It's definitely true in finance. You know, what's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is you create a whole series of, of language and rituals and, and shorthand and kind of insider knowledge um, that has this wonderful effect of, of binding a community together, but has this ancillary effect that's not so great um, that sort of fragments folks. And um, in doing so, I think we leave ourselves open for a really important tension um, that is at the center of, of my work at Putnam, um, where we're trying to take a more complete, more holistic, long-term view uh, of thoughtful investing. And so we're taking all the things that have been kind of set over in the corner or called externalities and kind of bringing them back into the process. Um, the tension is that doing that, um, because we have created all these different silos is, is easier said than done. Um, the SDGs are actually a great example of this. So here we have this really glorious, complete, comprehensive roadmap for, for what we think might constitute a thriving world and how we might you know, make progress in that direction. Very ambitious, stunningly labor intensive to get to the point where there is an agreed upon map um, at this big global level. Um, but I spent some time at the UN last year and um, as soon as you have a map that's very complicated and comprehensive, the natural tendency that we have in our institutions is to create a lot of stuff to support that map. And so, you know, the SDGs are not just those 17 icons. There's hundreds and hundreds of pages on exactly what is meant and how we can measure progress and all the different policy implications that should be considered and um, what constitutes, you know, true alignment versus partial alignment. All of that's hugely necessary and, and an important part of what an effective bureaucracy can do, but oh, it's heavy. And it doesn't always match what we're witnessing in the world in terms of what's important. You know, the things that fit on your spreadsheet are not always the things that are most relevant to consider. And so there's this push and pull between wanting to have thoughtful, comprehensive, kind of quantifiable progress and really keeping that North Star of, of why uh, in mind. Um, when, I, when I was visiting the UN, we had a few days kind of deep in that bureaucratic uh, diving into the weeds element. And then I turned a corner and um, 
I had no idea that, that I was in the spot uh, where this is, but there's a beautiful um, Chagall window in, in the United Nations, kind of down a funny little hallway, and it's, it's the Blue Angel. And so you're walking down this, you know, kind of closed off setting, and all of a sudden, this angel appears. Um, to me, that was the moment, like that was the bridge, like, oh my gosh, here's this very heavy handbook that I can hardly carry if I print it out. But here is what we're really after, right? And so holding those two things simultaneously for, for many of us in our professional settings, I, I think is the task, you know, to not let go of either, uh, either end of that equation. Um, so what that means in practice for my team has been really interesting. Uh, again, trying to kind of hold um, both of these elements together. Um, on the quantitative side, um, by many measures, um, the team has been very successful. We run two um, mutual fund products that have had really stellar results. All the conventional markers of investment success, um, it's just been a few years, but at this point you can say, check, check, check. Um, but boy, that's like tip of the iceberg for what you really wanna know. Um, when I think about the things that are a little bit under the surface, both for us and for the companies that we invest in, that's where all the interesting stuff lies. And again, it doesn't fit so neatly on a spreadsheet, but boy, it's so much better. Um, I have the chance, for example, when I talk to CEOs of companies to either take sort of a checklist approach and walk them through a very tedious report card process, critiquing all along the way, or I have the chance to ask something much more open-ended um, and hopefully maybe more inspiring. So I, I tend to ask CEOs on the sustainability front before we turn to all the metrics and report card elements, um, you know, what, what's the coolest thing you're doing? You know, what is the thing you're proudest of that you don't get to talk about very often? What is the thing that investors never ask you about that they really should because it's the key to everything that you do? You know, if you really wanted to make the greatest difference in the world, what would that be? Like, what might you do? Um, gosh, that's such a fun conversation. It's much more important than double checking all the data that I already can get from other sources. Um, similarly on our team, you know, we spend a lot of time with our heads down in spreadsheets. Um, so one thing that we do uh, on a weekly basis when we get together is um, we do this quick uh, round robin of best things, you know, what's the best thing that happened to you this week? And, um, you know, it started out very wonky and work oriented and has gradually gotten more and more personal. Um, but this is directly from my divinity school training. You know, what are we doing? It's a gratitude practice and it's building community. Now, I don't call it that, you know, if I showed up the first day and said to our team, hey, we're going to do a gratitude practice to build community. There aren't that many financial firms where that would go over super well, but the impact is terrific and everyone's happy to do it. Um, so the labels kind of get in our way. And again, I'm sort of ending where I started. I think this tension between needing to have thoughtful, clear, analytical, quantifiable frameworks for things that really matter and also needing to keep that, that sort of blue angel in sight, you know, that, that sense of community and connection and purpose, you know, for, for almost all of us living at this point in history, that's, um, that's our role, right? Is, is to be fully present and fully active across all those dimensions. Thank you, Catherine. That's fascinating. Uh, your work is, is indeed timely uh, given the multiple challenges our society faces. Graham, you have been making meaning in and through multiple facets of your life as a husband, a father, investment banker, 
trustee of your church in New York, board member of the New York Theological Seminary, and of course, founder and CEO of Genesis, to name just a few of your commitments. Genesis is a for-profit enterprise whose name and roots can be traced in several ways to the combination of a course you took at Harvard Divinity School and the first book of the Bible. Please connect the dots for us and unpack how you view the intersectionality of an active, civic-minded, entrepreneurially driven, family-centered, and faith-based life. Thanks for the question. Um, definitely not, um, definitely a lot there. Um, I'll do the best I can. Um, you know, it's funny, um, another way that, that um, Harvard Divinity School touched, uh, you know, my business was, I think it was uh, Professor Coogan teaching introduction to the Old Testament at that time that I took the course. And um, he started with a, um, a reading of Genesis, which, you know, uh, I had never really quite uh, heard before, which was a much more, I guess, um, explicit or um, uh, a tangible meaning of what it what, what it read. And I might probably botch this up, so forgive me, professors who are on the phone, but, but I think it was like in the beginning uh, when God created the heavens, or began to create the heavens and the earth, right? The, the earth was a formless void um, and darkness covered the face of the void and a wind, a wind, a wind from God, spirit of God swept over the face of the earth, hopefully all the waters, hopefully I did that right. Um, but, um, and, and one of the things he said was that it, in the ancient mind, um, it really wasn't about a creation of something out of nothing, which was phenomenally interesting to me. Um, but it was more about, um, God perfecting, God calling, God making better what was there. Um, and that really became um, a guiding principle for Genesis. Um, we don't come into communities and believe that we are creating something when there's nothing and there's disarray. Um, we are trying to add to the community, to build it up, to create communities of resiliency. Um, and um, whether that's for somebody who's making a low wage job, somebody who's making a working wage, a living wage, um, moderate income, market rate. Um, we owe it to all of those folks to provide that quality of, of life to the best that we can do it. Um, and so that's what we try to do. Um, and we try to look at the communities that we involve ourselves in and figure out how can we kind of meet the needs because kind of from an ethics standpoint, but it makes sense from a profit standpoint. Um, so we've never really thought about ourselves as a double line, double bottom line business. We we provide a product to the to the to our communities that we think people ought to have, and that's a good product, and that's a reason why they want to live there. Um, and um, and so um, we don't take any of that for granted, um, and we challenge ourselves even when we make mistakes to do better and to change. Um, and so, you know, um, that's how we, that's how we thought about the business. And I would say like when we first started Genesis, we looked, you know, I looked around and I grew up in the Harlem and the Bronx, which was some of the toughest neighborhoods back in the nineties. Um, and, um, a lot of my friends have asthma kinds of sick building syndrome stuff. And, 
you know, you just look and say, okay, my, my mom and my family has sacrificed so that I can do so much, but this can be better, right? Basics of capitalism, that there's a need you can address, right? And, um, and so that void is what I felt Genesis could fulfill. And a lot of other uh, developers who um, have the same mentality as I do. Um, and so, um, you know, that's how we've thought about the business. And the profit motivation is important because resources are important. And, you know, I believe that I could take my mind that was trained by some of the best investment minds um, and create a business that was profitable and sustainable um, and put out a product, a, a housing product and others that um, could be sustainable as well for the tenants um, and sustainable for those communities um, because we can't put out a product that can't keep itself alive because then we are essentially undoing the good work that we're doing. Um, and so I think um, all of that plays um, the role of addressing inequities. I mean, um, you know, several decades of inequities in real estate and land um, and the fact that, you know, a, a young black kid who um, really had no um, uh, affiliation or, or understanding of what it would mean to be a business person mentored by um, trustees from a little college in Massachusetts, Amherst College, who asked me if I want to be an investment banker. And I said, what am I going to do? Like sit in front of a computer all day? And they had to explain to me like what it meant to be a business person. I didn't know. Um, but that I could take that beginning and become CEO of my own company with the effort to create generational wealth, you know, is a success story for capitalism um, and a success story for faith. So um, I think there's, um, despite everything that we may be grieving about in the world, um, there's a lot that we can do. Um, and there's a lot to be proud of in terms of what we've created. We need to continue to look forward and figure out ways to continue to build upon that. Thank you, Karim. It's very, very informative and congratulations. Um, Al Hussein, um, you and your wife were early adapters to the tech sector. Uh, I have a two-part question for you. The first part is, could you share with us a few of the learnings, uh, both positive and less than positive, that you have gained from your experiences in Silicon Valley? And number two, when we met last week to prepare for today's discussion, uh, you expressed concern about one of the lesser discussed outgrowths from the pandemic. Uh, specifically the exponential surge in the money supply. Would you mind explaining in a layperson's language why this metric is as important as it is and what it suggests for this anxiety-laden period in human history in which we all find ourselves? And from there, we will pick up on our discussion about capitalism and repairing the world. Hussein, please take it away. Thank you, John. And you know, thank you, Kareem and Catherine, for your great comments. So Silicon Valley is a place where, as my friends will tell you, uh, like they, they, they think I'm unemployable anywhere else in the world. Like you can't take my resume and get a job in New York or DC because, you know, you go from startup to fail to startup to fail and you try and figure it out. And you try and uh, and you fail fast, 
And what you realize in Silicon Valley, which is a melting pot and, and it creates an, there's an entire ecosystem that supports this, is that the distance between success, between you and success is actually quite small. The distance is actually quite small. And it's one on the margins. It's one on the margins. What you realize is that whether you're a 26 year old CEO that's just closed $100 million from a venture capital firm, or you are one employee at one of these companies I've worked at, uh, everybody is an entrepreneur and everybody has an opportunity to succeed in a way that is beyond uh, what they had ever imagined. Why? Because you are building the future here. You're building the future. You're, you're building the ship, you know, while it's sailing uh, in many ways. Um, and so my emergence in Silicon Valley is really around, as I mentioned earlier, just following my wife here. <laughs> uh, it was accidental, um, but we've benefited greatly from it. And uh, in part, it, for me, it was just to answer the call, right? Answer the call to service. And, you know, in my role now as a people officer, you know, I think about the community that we're creating in our companies. And I think about, you know, the challenges that our employees face, uh, not just on a day-to-day -day basis, but existential challenges, ethical challenges. Uh, and so one of my learnings is that success is actually one on the margins and success is actually the distance between anybody and success is actually quite small. And the other thing I've learned is There is a, everybody here in Silicon Valley, no matter how much money you've raised, no, much, no matter your wealth that you've created or the lack thereof, everybody is very, very, very similar in that we're all actually human and we're all very much the same. And the quicker we realize that, the quicker you realize that you could be that person too. That's what I love about Silicon Valley is that you literally could be anybody. All you have to do is try. Now, when it comes to the money supply, and this is something that's very important for us to understand. It's something that I'm spending some, a lot of time thinking about and discussing uh, you know, among my cadre and cohort here. And that is, you know, the United, if you look at this chart, the United States has printed more money during this recession in the last 11 months than in the first two centuries of our founding, right? So if you zoom in a little bit and you go to the next slide, what you'll see is that blip in 2001, that speed bump in 2008 compared to today. So this is actually significant. This is deeply significant. And what I would say to this is that we as Americans, nay humans, are tired of being productized. You know the saying, if it's free, you are the product. Meaning somebody is monetizing you and your data. Whether it's social media or trading shorts on Robinhood, as we've seen this past week, 
where they've, it's actually free to trade on Robinhood because they receive payment for order flow or even receiving a $1,200 stimulus check in the mail. If it is free, you are the product. And so the decentralized, and so what I would articulate is that we as corporations and as Americans and as humans should be seriously concerned about this, the M1 money supply. And as a answer, and I think what we're finding in our communities increasingly, our faith communities, our corporations, and the way we are restructuring faith and organizations is that we're creating a decentralization of power and access so that value accrues to all equally, not just to a single body, not just to a single corporation. Um, and that whether you're on a corporate level or a nonprofit or a faith community, or just a, somebody living in their home sheltered in place, it's time for us to play offense when the rest of the world is playing defense in light of the increased money supply. Great, thank you, Karim. Um, we are coming up to the point where we'd like to open it up to questions, but I have one last question for you. And if you could answer it just in about one or two minutes. Um, could you share your thoughts um, regarding the notion that capitalism is ripe for change? Uh, for example, university professor Rebecca Henderson has suggested that in effect, repairing a world that is on fire will require reimagining capitalism. Uh, my question is, if you could put the broader challenges facing society, such as justice, sustainability, ethical norms, and human development, within the context of your own faiths and your hopes for 2021, what, did, what would that mean? And Karim, I know you are near and dear, or the concerns of justice and prison reform are near and dear to you. If you could get us started, but again, I would ask each panelist to try to confine your comment to roughly two minutes, please. Karim, if you could start us. Sure. Um, so, I guess my answer would be that um, I, I do not think capitalism is the problem, um, um, but I do think um, there's a lot of personal responsibility that needs to be generally taken. I'll give you one example, um, and it hits on the criminal justice stuff, but you know, we were hiring a, third, a large third-party property manager to manage some properties for us, and we didn't have a maintenance person, a porter, to work the properties, and um, you know, we went to a temp service and got a, a young African-American, must have been in his, 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 his early 30s, maybe late 20s, to work for us. He was doing a fantastic job. I had gone by as the owner and just kind of like checked on things. And I saw him there working late. His daughter was kind of in the office because he didn't have anywhere to, to kind of store her while, while, um, while he was working. And I got a chance to talk to her and meet her. And I said to the, the large firm, I said, hey, why don't we just go ahead and, and hire this guy? We're paying, we're paying a premium for the temp service. And um, they said, you know, that's a great idea, Chrome. we should go ahead and do that. So I got a call a couple of weeks later and said, well, we can't hire the guy. I said, well, what do you mean you can't hire the guy? Said, well, yeah, you know, apparently he had some interaction with the police at some point when he was, you know, you know, maybe late high school or, you know, recently, you know, after that. And I said, well, this is probably like 10, 12 years. And I said, yeah, was it anything serious? I said, probably not. But you know our our uh, our guidelines don't allow us to hire him, 
And, uh, and I thought it was just an absurd resolution uh, to a guy who potentially made a mistake, maybe didn't, um, that his life should be completely shut off um, and beyond uh, any mercy or forgiveness uh, because of some interaction that was unclear that he had uh, when he was a kid. Um, and so we had found a way, to, we figured out a way to hire him by actually hiring him through our company and then allowing him to service the property. Um, so we got through the issue, but I think, you know, we need to be looking at who are in these driver's seats and what decisions are being made. And on the flip side of that, I would say, um, that, um, I believe actually that the, the corporate body, and remember that's also nonprofit institutions like Harvard, um, have done, even in the face of some of the racial issues and police brutality, um, whether you like all the programs they have or not, they have resourced many programs and responded in ways, in my view, that have been much faster than, than our government. Um, and so um, while I think there are certainly issues in the, in the corporate body, um, I think that um, there's a lot to be desired from uh, folks um, on the government side and other sides, and even in our faith communities um, who have been broken apart. Uh, by disagreements and politics, um, that uh, that they have they have been much slower to respond to the needs in the communities, um, at least that I come from and that I service. Thanks, Graham. Catherine. Yeah, there's such a lot there. I think um, the the two words that keep coming to mind for me are um, proximity and alignment, um, and I think. Um, this strings together the last couple of things we've talked about here. Um, whenever I see a layer, whether it's in a business or in a financial structure um, or in a, a process or a rule system that creates um, more opacity, uh, I naturally just kind of put a little star beside it um, because often it's, it's well-intended, but it ends up um, opening up these consequences that are not so, not so well-intended over time. So that's true in the human level. Uh, it's, it's true in terms of capital flows. Um, it's true in terms of, you know, setting up a rigid rule system that if you just fast forward five or 10 years has some really strange effects. Um, I'll give you a quick tangible example just to make it clear. Um, by some measures of sustainable investing, uh, the first thing you do is have no affiliation whatsoever with any company that is a major user of hydrocarbons. And there's good reason for that. I mean, I think it's pretty intuitive probably to everyone listening. Um, if I do that as the first rule, it means I never talk to any of those producers. I never can engage with a big utility, for example, that is transforming its entire fleet from hydrocarbons to renewables. I can't really be part of the shift, right? Because I'm just seceding. Um, and so this, this reconnection, again, I think relates very directly to the alignment of, you know, how is this system created and what are the natural consequences that come from it? Um, when we ask the question, you know, is capitalism broken? Those are the two things that I always find as root causes. You know, the current form of capitalism is not so great in some ways, but it's pretty awesome in other ways. Same for democracy, same for education. I mean, you can say it for almost every big system that exists at this point. And so the diagnosis to me is to get back to that proximal level. So like Karim just mentioned, you know, once you know the person, you can figure out a solution uh, you know, once you see the investment opportunity, you can figure out 
a way to actually connect the dots. But if you can't see it, if you're not that close to begin with, um, that's a real systemic structural issue that um, I think we can all play our part in, in resolving. Great, thank you, Kevin. Allison? Yeah, so I think, sure. I think we're restructuring capitalism and its impact to the, the little person in Silicon Valley and technology is a great disruptor there. I think we are gonna find a future that is decentralized. Finance is decentralized. Opportunities are decentralized and more value will accrue to the individual, not to the, the whole. Uh, and we're seeing that in the way social media is restructuring. We're seeing that in the way investments are restructuring. And we're seeing that in the way stocks are being traded today. Uh, the two words that come to mind for me are, are grace and shame. And I think we as humans experience shame in this society. And as leaders, our responsibility is to provide grace in our corporations during this tumultuous time as a recession, even outside of this is find opportunities and avenues for grace within the system. Everybody carries shame. Everybody carries some level of shame. And often it is due in fact to a work environment, a, a systemic environment that they have put themselves in in order to provide for their family. My response is with grace. Great. And as leaders, that's where we should focus our energies. Great, thank you. Thank you all of the panelists for your time and your input and to our guests who are participating across the, the internet. Um, we're excited to continue this discussion with a little engagement from all of you who are here. We have one question to start, um, sort of a reflection and question from Bruce McEver, um, you know, saying, doesn't, doesn't a lot of this boil down to the golden rule in business, treating others as you would like to be treated and running your business like that? Um, and I think you touched on that Al Hussein, even like in your remarks about grace. Um, but if, if you know you or anyone else wanna just share any other reflections on that or how you think about that, that would be great. I think it's a good point. I'm sorry, go ahead, Al. No, no, you go ahead. No. So, so, so I would just ask us in our daily lives as we walk through the halls of corporations or go through Zoom after Zoom after Zoom meetings in our crazy back-to-back -back schedules to think about grace and to think and realize that people do carry shame. That's all. Just recognize the humanity of those on this two-dimensional Brady Bunch view of the world as a start. Corinne? No, I think it's a good point, especially in seeing humanity. I would just say that um, on the, also on the question, I think there's a lot that can be done better um, when it comes to the corporate body. Um, I, I think it's really interesting with all the police brutality stuff, how quickly the corporate folks made policies and put resources behind various things, um, whether it's too little or too much um, can be debated. But I think that oftentimes we also have to look at the notion of, um, you know, the golden rule, even outside of capitalism, right? 
you know, capitalism doesn't survive in and of itself. It's still subjected into a government system, right? And so, you know, to the extent that people care more about being elected <laughs> than they care about their mission and duties or in the faith context, you know, um, not having the golden rule mentality, that all affects us, right? Not just affects capitalism. And so I, I, think it, I think it goes beyond just whether we should be running a business a certain way. I absolutely believe that. Um, but um, we have to look at society as a whole, I think, before we can just say, okay, hey, capitalism needs to be focused in on. I think that would be my comment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's often the case that elected officials first action when they are elected is to staff their re-election campaign, right? Because they are overly focused on being career politicians rather than serving and answering the call to service. Well, and I think Bruce, your comment brings up a, a really important reflection we've all touched on in different ways. Um, I've been trying through my divinity studies and elsewhere to ask a different question when these kinds of disconnects come up like, hmm, that's totally true that politicians do that. Why? You know, what, under what conditions does that make perfect sense? Um, and is there something we could do about those conditions, right? I, I think we're in a very polarized time right now, especially in the U.S., where it's just us and them, good and bad on every issue. And a, a much more interesting question usually is, how did that come to be? You know, why does that seem sensible to these folks that I so strongly disagree with on this topic. Um, it at least opens you up like just a little bit more to, to seeing something that you might not fully fully see otherwise. And that's a big piece of what's embedded in your comment, Bruce, the idea that um, you know the, the revised golden rule, the platinum rule is do unto others as, as they would have done unto them, you know, not, not kind of imposing your thoughts of, of goodness. I would just say, if I can be a little controversial, that so what is the role of the faith community? Like, have we stepped up enough in these times and been a guidepost? And, you know, and, you know, I was listening to, I think, an NPR podcast, and they were talking about evangelical churches and how they've had to, like, figure out ways to discuss all of the political kind of, like, bickering that's happened there around, you know, Trump versus Biden and all that kind of stuff. And so, and what is the role of the faith community to, to, to continue to serve these communities, right? We do have nonprofits playing a larger role than ever in communities, right? And in some ways, you know, doing things that, that we have to rely on the church to do, you know, many, many decades ago. And so I think we have to look at faith too and, and a call to action there and a renewal and, a, and saying, hey guys, you know, we can't just sit and preach the same thing. We can't just we can't just sit and teach the same thing. We have to figure out how are we making this relevant to the world that people live in now, which is uh, inequality, it's injustice. Um, uh, you still want people to pursue happiness and, and confidence. And so all of this stuff to me is important for us as faith leaders to be dealing with and having relevance about. I would just add that we, we as faith leaders have to go to the conversation. We can't wait for the conversation to come to us. And more often than not, it's happening online and in diverse and decentralized communities off of the main you know, thread, as it were. 
And it's not happening necessarily in, not only happening in brick and mortar institutions, but are actually happening and people are self-organizing in communities online. And our role should be to go and bring the conversation, host the conversation there, not expect it to come to us. Mm -hmm. Flowing in a related but slightly new direction, um, there's a question focused on access. And you know, the background for the question is who can and cannot participate in capitalism for profit is the, is the problem. And um, she says, most minorities participate as consumers. Men money leaves the community quickly and spends more time providing for whites in their communities. How can we get banks to provide loans to minorities for their community businesses? Well, access to capital is a huge issue in the African-American community, and it has dogged our ability to be entrepreneurial, but so is criminal justice. Um, you know, we have um, many of our outsized amount of men and even women who are going to jail and essentially being stripped of their rights. Um, you know, how can you have sustainable communities that can grow economically? Um, and then education are huge issues, right? Um, um, and, you know, um, I would say, though, I believe in the African African American community specifically, there are tremendous, tremendous thought leaders and innovators um, that have not been able to um, access um, capitalism, um, and um, in many, many ways, um, maybe because of liquidity, maybe because of situations, um, you know, and so that absolutely has to be addressed. Um, and I think some of the banks have begun to look at programs to deal with issues of, um, of inequity in, 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 um, in, in, in capital raising or in liquidity or access to capital. Um, and that's a conversation. But I think what we've learned as an African-American community is that as when we were shut out of the corporate uh, world, we have to figure out ways to get into it. And then we had to make change right, and show, hey, that we can be valuable contributors there. Um, I, I, I think that um, the answer is that we have to um, open up those access to capitals and we have to allow folks to be innovative. And that means we have to give them opportunities um, to, to, to um, you know, to indulge in their talents. And I think, uh, and, 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 and that means keeping them out of prisons um, and, uh, and giving them access to education. And so, you know, to me, those are the, those those are the key those are the key things, and and I don't think we can demonize capitalism. Um, we have to allow folks to celebrate it because, um, you know, whether you're a kid on the street and you want to see somebody doing well, whether it's in sports or if it's in you know music or whether it's in business, they should be able to see all those role models, or in politics rather, you see all those role models or faith leaders, you should see all those role models and figure out what it is that they want to do, um, and be able to achieve those things. Um, so that's my view on it. Mm -hmm. One thing that um, that I'm observing when we talk with you know big financial institutions who are at the heart of some of this challenge, um, one thing that's shifted that is very encouraging to me, and, and again, kind of hard to fit on a spreadsheet, is that we seem to be moving from an era where the response would be, um, in some cases, positive but very limited. You know, so we have a new initiative. We have a new loan pool. We have a new program, all of which can be wonderful, um, but they're only wonderful if they are 
bridges to a bigger, more systemic solution that is, you know, a truly inclusive kind of underlying system. And so one thing um, that we've been discussing with, with some of the major banks that are investment candidates for us, which could not have been a conversation even I'd say five years ago is okay. You've got these initiatives that I can see like out in the press release, you know, awesome way to get some energy and focus. Um, but tell me what you're doing behind the scenes. You know, what are you changing in terms of policies? What are you changing in terms of ongoing guidelines? What are you doing in terms of changing your own processes um, to really make this a more permanent shift and not just a neat program that when it ends, it ends. And um, so again, that, that sort of reconnection and that willingness to, to look within as opposed to like the, the mentality of, you know, I'm going to do you a favor, you know, by like offering this gift. Like it's, it's a big shift to go from, you know, I'm going to do this thing voluntarily to like, Oh, we need to change our own, our own selves, you know, our own systems internally. Um, so I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. It's, it's early days, but um, just the recognition that, um, you know, one by one special, program is, is not going to get at that root is um, a really, really big shift. And I would just quickly say it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to take a lot of time. And so take a long view, take a long view and recognize that we also have to see it to be it, right? And so find those, find those mentors, find those coaches and find those leaders that you that we can model ourselves after to find perhaps a quicker path to individual success so that you can create we can create family success and then you know success in the community it will take sacrifice though i totally agree with that alexander it's a great point i mean if i look at my business you know we have suffered from access to capital but we've grown through that right but you know we hire a very diverse workforce we hire a lot of folks who live in the communities. And so we can, I can make a change, go to the, the, the thought process of, um, hey, money is flowing out of poor communities and minority, minority communities, but we can change that, right? I can hire folks in those community in those communities. They can now have stable jobs. They can now have families and grow their families and hopefully educate their kids and be a good father and be a good mother. Um, and, and we're giving them those opportunities by employing them. So I feel like we can be on the front lines as business owners. And it goes outside of, to me, racial identity politics, right? Not, not necessarily because I'm black or because somebody is white for doing it, but they have to be thinking about, okay, how can I make a change and how can I actually institute policies to Catherine's point that do change? And, you know, I'm not going to solve the world's problems, but the folks who I believe are working for our firm have a good living and are able to uh, have a living wage and are able to grow and to have stability, which is the concept, right? If kids don't have stability at home, they can't go and get educated. So I think it starts with the building blocks um, and, and, and taking personal responsibility for doing the good stuff. I think we, that, uh, we could talk all day and we'll have to find ways to continue this conversation. I think we'll start to wrap up there. Um, John, I want to give you a chance to say, you know, any concluding thoughts, and then I'll just share some final, final remarks, and we'll sign off. Um, thank you, Lori, um, and thank you, panelists. Um, if we had three more minutes, I would ask you one last question, but I will give you the preface to the question and let that be my closing comment. 
In my private conversations with each of you, I detected a keen awareness, if not a personal identity with and empathy for some of society's biggest challenges. But I also noticed in your voices and your demeanors, something called hopefulness. I think this is the one area that I wish we could have explored just a little bit more for each of you to share how you have managed to remain hopeful in this period in which the pandemic, social unrest, and pronounced discord seem to be uppermost in our public and private conversations. So I thank you for the message of hopefulness, some of which I believe came through in our conversation this morning. And it's a conversation I hope to follow with each of, each of you at some later point. But thank you ever so much. Thank you, Lori and your team. And thank you to our guests for joining us. Thank you, John. My thanks to you, to all of you, Al Hussein, Catherine, Karim, and to the to the DER team who put this together. Um, I I wanted to conclude with the exact same feeling. I feel more hope after this conversation than I have felt on many days of late. And I think believing, you know, I love the the reference to Amanda Gorman's poem, Al Hussein, and the just, you know, believing that we can keep moving forward and we can take a long view and that there are good people, you know, who want to find ways to work together and make the most of capitalism and democracy and all aspects of our society. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Um, everyone, I know that the panelists are happy to hear more questions. If you have questions and you want to email them to us afterwards, um, you can, you know, reply to the original event invitation or what, whatever works for you. We can share more questions with them um, and happy to connect you, you know, individually. Also, I want you to look out for an article. Um, John had the wonderful thought to share Clay Christensen's article, How Will You Measure Your Life, as follow-up to this discussion to, to just provide some more food for thought and reflection. That's all for today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Kareem. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, everyone.